That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. However you find this show, radio stations around the country, podcast platforms, CBSN, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, thanks for finding us. Thanks for getting the vibe. I want to waste no time and get to our guest. He's written two incredibly important books, one titled How to Be an Anti-Racist, the other stamped from the beginning. His name is Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Kendi, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Major, for having me on. So I have read cover to cover How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'm a third of the way through stamped from the beginning. I don't know if I'm reading them in proper order, but what I've done with How to Be an Anti-Racist, Dr. Kendi, is I have actually torn out pages from the book because I didn't want to awkwardly flip through it during our conversation. (laughs) So I'm going to buy another copy so it's all whole my second time around. But this one is torn up because I just want to read things from it and get you to explain them because I think that's the best way to walk through this conversation because it's a deeply important one, one that I gather from your writing, maybe the country is more able to have or at least launch than it ever has been before. So I want to read from page nine. Denial is the heartbeat of racism, beating across ideologies, races, and nations. It is beating within us. What does that mean? What that means in, is studying really the history of racism. What I find is whether you're talking about slave traders or slaveholders or people who engaged in lynchings or Jim Crow segregationists or, you know, Derek Chauvin or, you know, I mean, you you name the person who engaged in a racist act, uh, chances are they self-identify as not racist. And, And they say that the problem are the people who are the victims of their act. And, and typically, when people are supporting policies that are leading to inequity and injustice, they self-identify those policies as, as not racist. And so I, I just sort of have just tracked this over the course of history, how people just refuse to acknowledge the ways in which their ideas and policies you know, are racist. Also from page nine, there is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. You say this might sound harsh, but why is it important to understand that distinction? Because, as I, as I just stated, when people think about it, when, when people do or say something that is racist, and we point it out, the common response of people is to say, I'm not racist, <laughs> uh, no matter what, like no matter what right. they did, right? Right. 
And, and what I'm saying is what if the common response of the person was to reflect on whether the idea was racist based on a definition of a racist idea? And then if it was to say, you know what, that was a racist idea. You know, I was wrong. I, I want to be better and do better. And that act of admission and transformation is an anti-racist act. And I want people to understand, because you go into great pains in the book to do this, you hold yourself to account. You don't exempt yourself from this process, do you? No, and I think for too long, we, as human beings, we've defined racist and racism in a way that exonerates us. <laughs> and and I was like, no, I mean, you know, I think when you define a term, it should be based on the evidence and the material reality. And 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 so when I ended up defining, you know, even the term racist, I realized that in certain ways I had thought there was something wrong with black people. In certain ways, I had not challenged systemic racism. And and so I had to hold even uh, myself to account. And definitionally, what is racist? What is anti-racist? In the simplest, clearest terms possible. Racist is someone who is expressing an idea of racial hierarchy or supporting a policy that's leading to racial inequity. An anti-racist is the very opposite. Someone who is expressing an idea of racial equality or supporting a policy that's leading to, to racial equity. Right. And so getting back to where we just were, if someone says, well, hey, I don't do or say anything, but are either indifferent to or vaguely supportive of policies that lead to racial inequities, that is a form of racism. True? Yeah, because if a policy is on the books and it's maintaining an inequity and we're not and 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 we are not doing anything to undermine that policy and thereby that inequity, what's going to happen? It's going to persist. So I want to read from page 19. Since the 1960s, racist power has commandeered the term racial discrimination, transforming the act of discriminating on the basis of race into an inherently racist act. Now, some in my audience may think, well, yeah, isn't that true? It is. And you would say, and you argue, no, it's not true. And I, I think let's, let's take the example of the vaccine and, and the response of the U.S. government. The U.S. government realized that elderly Americans were dying at the highest rate from COVID-19. So the U.S. government said, because they are dying at the highest rates, they should receive the vaccine first. Uh, younger people could have argued, oh, well, you're discriminating against me because you're giving the vaccine first to elderly people. And by definition, that is a that is discrimination. But what we saw was no, elderly people are dying at the highest rate, so they should get the vaccine first. Right. And that is a conscious act of discrimination. Exactly. For a just and equitable end. So, uh, again, because there's so much ground to cover, <laughs> please forgive me, but I'm just going to read your book to you because it's a launching point for so many conversations. Page 23. Racist ideas have defined our society since its beginning and can feel so natural and obvious as to be banal. 
But anti-racist ideas remain difficult to comprehend, in part because they go against the flow of this country's history. Explain what you mean by that. Well, first and foremost, we have been taught throughout this nation's history that the reason why certain racial groups have more is because they've worked harder, is because they're smarter, and other groups have less racial groups is because they haven't worked as hard, they aren't as smart. And so therefore we haven't as a people commonly recognized that actually the racial groups are equals. And the reason why certain groups have more or less is because of bad policies. And you write in the book that this banality is so common, so visible and so invisible it's second nature. It is. And that is one of the things that's hard to deal with, right? I mean, you take, we mentioned COVID, you know, the pandemic. Last April, when we learned that Black people were dying at the highest rates from COVID-19, and they were being the most likely to be infected, almost instinctually, you had people, Democrat, Republicans, people of all races, assume that it was because Black people were not socially distancing, assumed that it was because Black people were not taking the coronavirus seriously, assumed it was because there was something wrong with Black people. Like that was almost, and then we had, and then what I think the American people began to realize is, is by the end of April, you had uh, crowds that were demanding for the states to reopen. And those crowds, there were very few Black people. <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, we also began to see polls and surveys that showed actually Black people were taking the coronavirus the most seriously. So, right. so I think, it, you know, we're just consistently, we, we, we think that it's because there's something wrong with people. That's why we have these inequities. Our guest, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, two great books, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Stand from the Beginning. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout coming up in just one second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is our guest. Uh, Dr. Kendi, what do you do right now and where do you do it? I am a professor at, at Boston University, and I'm also directing our Center for Anti-Racist Research. Very good. Um, I want to bring up a couple of things that are in the news right now. and We'll get back to the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, critical Race Theory has become, and I don't want to use the cliche political football because that's too dumb and that's too oversimplified, but it has become an issue that Republicans have identified as something in which they allege it can't be taught, shouldn't be taught, should receive no taxpayer money because in their words, it teaches children to hate America. Your 
overall reaction to that line of thinking and your explanation for the audience who may not understand what critical race theory is, what is it about? Well, I, I think it's it's really unfortunate because anyone who has studied critical race theory, what we know is that if it if it's going to teach anybody to not like something, it's going to teach them to not like racism. <laughs> so and and then what it will also teach young people is the people who have fought against racism. And so throughout this country's history, you've had people behind racism and you've had people fighting, you know, against racism. But more specifically, if it's being taught likely in law schools, which is where it's primarily taught, it's being taught to, to prospective lawyers to learn how they can use the law, how they can use their skills to create a just and equitable society. I don't understand what's so wrong with that. <laughs> right. And there's nothing you're afraid of or you believe parents should be afraid of with children learning more about embedded racism in our history. So as a parent myself, I have a five-year-old daughter, and I actually fear not teaching her about racism because my fear is that if she grows up in this unequal society in which she sees that certain groups have more or less, and I'm not teaching her that neither of those groups are, are better or worse. I'm, I'm, and you know, what is she going to assume, you know, as to well, let's say why black people are disproportionately impoverished or incarcerated? She's just going to assume there's something wrong with black people. Uh, if you're a parent of a white child who is being taught directly and indirectly that they're special because they're white, uh, don't you want to teach that child? No, no, no. What makes you special is because you're hardworking, is because you're creative, is because you're funny. It has nothing to do with your color of your skin. And if we don't actively teach our children that, what is society going to teach them? Right. And you write in the book about one of the things that is a hazard or a caution is assuming that you should, if you are an anti-racist, hate white people because white people are synonymous with this white racist power. You argue that's not true and that some whites, in fact, you argue many whites are victims of white of racism and white supremacy. I mean, if, if you look at the history of the United States, whether you're talking about the millions of poor or working class whites in the slaveholding South, whose poverty was directly related to the riches of a few thousand slaveholding families, or whether you, you look at even the sort of era during Reconstruction uh, and even the era of Jim Crow, where you even had white people who had to organize so that they can gain the right to vote in the Jim Crow South. Because not only were Black people disenfranchised, but many working class poor whites who could not pass literacy tests were also disenfranchised. Or whether you, you know, look into the times in which you had white people who struck for better wages and, and, and you had uh, factory owners uh, who were able to bring in black strike breakers <laughs> because basically they were not organizing together, those black and white workers. Uh, and so as a result, both the black and white workers lost out, right? I mean, you you know, I, I don't think people realize the ways in which racism 
and, and you know, has has devastated. And now in the next election, you're going to have white people who struggle to vote because of a series of voter suppression policies, including, you know, as well as obviously people of color. Right. White people use drop boxes. White people vote early. They vote early in person. If those hours are restricted, they're influenced and affected by that just the same as a Latinx person or an African-American person. Yes. And, and so and so really and, and I, I don't I think that what what white Americans have been taught, which is not true, is that as people of color gain, they lose. That it's a zero sum game. It's a zero sum game, and and I I think that it's important for for white Americans for for people of color to realize, you know, that as we create more equitable policies for the community, <laughs> we're going to benefit because we're members of that community. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably going to butcher this name, but it's from page 41, talking about what happened beginning in 1735. Carl Linnaeus? Yes. Is that correct? Linnaeus, Linnaeus. I didn't butcher it. Linnaeus, (laughs) okay. Explain to my audience who he is and what Systema Naturae was and why it's so important to this embedded sense of race and hierarchy. Sure. So this sort of creation of the races, so like white Europeans or black Africans or uh, you know, Asian people or n- native people, this, these constructs of race were created, <laughs> were created by people, were created by people like Carl, Carl Linnaeus, who at the time, these scholars were called taxonomists. And so they not only were like naming the plants, <laughs> they were also naming the quote races. And, and in, in the case of, you know, and attributing to them characteristics that could, without question, fall on a positive-negative continuum. Precisely. And so he not only named the the races, but ranked them, and not only ranked them, but uh, assigned positive and negative characteristics, the most positive to, 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 to white people and the most negative to, to black people. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question not related to the book, uh, and it may sound glib, I don't mean it to. Which is older, patriarchy or racism? Patriarchy. Okay. And and, and ra- racism is is a fairly new human human phenomenon. It really did not emerge until the mid 1400s. So when, you know, when you're tracking the history of racism, it really starts with the transatlantic slave trade, which uh, as I read in the book, in both books, stamped from the beginning and how to be an anti-racist uh, was kind of a, if you want to call it, a cruel but historically important innovation of the Portuguese to not just have slave trade among those in Europe and the so-called Middle East, but from part, particular parts of Africa in which certain geographic areas of Northern Africa and Western Africa were prized and valued. Angola was less prized, but but that was a a transformation of this process. It was, and think about it. So in the early 1400s, you had Western European slave traders who were uh, not only sort of slave trading sub-Saharan Africans, but also Eastern European Slavs, which of course became the root word for slaves. That's why it was so, you know, Slavs were so dominant in the Western European slave market. But because uh, Slavs, uh, were of similar complexion 
to Western Europeans, it was easier for them to run away and blend in. It was harder for Sub-Saharan Africans. So they were valued more. And so Western European slave traders had to literally uh, work with uh, trans-Saharan slave traders. So Muslim slave traders would go into Sub-Saharan Africa and bring them up through the Sahara Desert and, and, and more or less sell them along the Mediterranean. And they were like, why don't we go around these middlemen and go to the source along the Atlantic Ocean. And, and so that's what the, the, the Portuguese did, pioneering what became known as the transatlantic slave trade. And then they started exclusively slave trading in African people. Understood. Ibram X. Kendi is our special guest. He's written two very important books, How to Be an Anti-Racist, stamped from the beginning. When we come back for segment three of this conversation, I want to pick up something from the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, page 47, in which I'll tease it up right now. I don't use microaggression anymore. We're going to find out why Dr. (laughs) Kendi doesn't use microaggression anymore. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to The Takeout, segment three of this fascinating conversation in just one second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. This is segment three of The Takeout. So, from page 47 of How to Be an Anti-Racist, this is Ibram X. Kendi writing in his own voice. I do not use microaggression anymore. I detest the post-racial platform that supported its sudden popularity. Why? Well, I mean, think about it in this way. Um, if, If I was to walk out of my home right now and start walking down the street and I'm headed to the store to get some milk because my wife was upset at me because I drank all the milk. Um, and, and I was walking down the street and I saw someone who saw me and they immediately crossed the street. And, 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 and I was like, okay, they did that because I was black and because they were scared. And then I keep moving and I walk into the store and then someone follows me around uh, again, likely because I'm black. And then I leave the store and I get stopped and frisked you know, by a police officer. All of these are individual actions and they're all minor uh, and micro. Quote unquote. Uh, when we think about them, quote unquote. And, but the way in which people experience them is they don't experience them in isolation. They experience them together. So for me, when I get back home, I'm going to be thinking about them in in a collective way, and I'm going to be thinking about them and feeling about them in the way that someone would feel as if they were abused. And so that's why I think, you know, I I call it racial abuse, you know, as opposed to microaggression. And let me ask you this, Dr. Kendi. If you are sensitive and alerted to those microaggressions every day and racism is so embedded in our society, do you ever get a break? I mean, do you personally ever get a break? I mean, do you feel under this sense of abuse constantly? And is there any way to counteract that other than through your writing and your teaching? Well, I, one of the things I, I try to do personally is I try not to take those types of actions, those types of offensive or racist actions personally. And that I don't, even if somebody says something to me that is offensive, I try not to feel personally offended. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I, I think that that's one of the ways in which I'm able to sort of navigate um, basically living in our country. Mm-hmm. And do you recommend that to other people who think about this and who may be beginning to think about this more intensely, 
Don't take it so personally, because if you do, you'll feel yourself abused all the time and you'll be in a constant state of feeling abused. I think so. And and I think it's important, like we can feel upset or outraged about the action so that maybe you want to do something to prevent it from happening again or but it's another thing to feel like less than because someone told you you were less than and i try not to to feel that way right and you write in the book about um your racial puberty uh and then later in the book about being in high school or being wanting to play basketball at neighborhood parks and your parents being nervous about that and your parents unintentionally, because they were involved in this activism, this conversation in the 1960s and 70s, but nevertheless unintentionally conveyed to you the sense of fearing other black people. And that that is a cycle that you also had to work out of, and maybe all of us at some level, consciously or subconsciously, have to work our way through. I mean, I, I talk about quite possibly the most dangerous racist idea is the idea of the dangerous black neighborhood. And it's an idea that no matter the color of our skin, we're, we're taught. And it is so, there's so many different reasons why it's dangerous, but, but one of the greatest reasons why it's dangerous is because it causes us to think that the reason why certain communities have, let's say higher levels of violent crime is because there's something wrong with those people. It's because of the blackness of the people. What we don't realize is typically those neighborhoods have higher levels and more denser levels of poverty and long-term unemployment. And and typically you have higher levels of of long-term poverty and unemployment. No matter the race in this country, you have higher levels of violent crime. So it causes us to be like, those places need more you know, they need militarized police, they need prisons, they need punishment, they need law and order, as opposed to those people in those communities need jobs. Mm -hmm. You also talk in the book about how people who have uh, nearly sterling, or maybe you would not regard it as sterling, but very laudable reputations in the civil rights movement, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Jesse Jackson, either falling prey or using language that indicated that there was either, if not a systemic problem, a behavioral problem in black neighborhoods or with Ebonics or things like that. Help my audience understand that what that signifies to you and what the takeaway from these faults committed by others who many in the black community and many in the white community look to for either leadership or some kind of informed perspective on these underlying issues. I think first and foremost, I I ended up defining a racist idea as any idea that suggested a racial group superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. Ended up recognizing that whenever someone says this is what's wrong with a particular racial group, they are expressing that something is inferior about that group. And obviously, I I sort of shared myself about how there were times in which I thought there was something wrong with with, with Black people. So You gave a speech again, about it. Exactly. And so for me, once you, once I say, you know what, I've said that, of course, I would certainly understand how other people would say that, even people I looked up to and, and still look up to, because these ideas are so widespread and, and so pervasive, it's hard not to say them at some point. And you say on, ch- on uh, page 95 of How to Be an Anti-Racist, and this continues the point, just as race 
doesn't exist biologically. Race doesn't exist behaviorally. And you talk about the idea of the genetic similarities across races, across races, and that as there is similarity there, there is nothing that's constant behaviorally that you can attribute to race. Yeah, I think one of our, one of the ways in which we have struggled is to distinguish culture from behavior. And, and what I mean by that is culture is something groups do. So, you know, groups have a philosophy, uh, groups have a way of cooking, a way of eating, a way of dancing, a way of singing, a way of worshiping. Um, and then you have behavior, which is something humans do. And so, you know, humans love, no matter the culture, but different cultures love in different ways, right. <laughs> but it's the same behavior. Uh, and, and I don't, I, I, so I, what I've been trying to get people to distinguish between culture, you know, and behavior. Right. I want to read to you from uh, page 155, because this picks up on a point we were discussing earlier. Now, uh, I simply am not, Dr. Kendi, ever comfortable using the N-word. I won't use it here, though you've written it in the book. Um, but I'll quote from it directly. For ages, racist poor whites have enriched their sense of self on the stepladder of racist ideas, what W.E.B. Du Bois famously called the wage of whiteness. I may not be rich, but at least I am not a N. Racist black elites, meanwhile, heightened their sense of self on the stepladder of racist ideas on what we call can call the wage of black elitism. I may not be white, but at least I am not them N. Walk my audience through what you're trying to make sure they understand and, and uh, absorb from that. So I think in the, in the case of, of white Americans, W.B. Du Bois and other scholars, you know, have t talked about how even if you're a poor or working class white person, you have particular privileges uh, that, you know, let's say, black people may not uh, or cannot have. And, and so, you know, some of those white people recognize that those privileges and say, yes, you know, I actually like that I can drink at the water fountain that is actually cleaned, uh, you know, at the public facility. I actually like that I can send my kid to the school that has more resources uh, when compared to the black school. And I'm, so at least I'm not those black people, even though I'm poor. And meanwhile, you have black elites who have bought into some of the ideas, degrading ideas about black poor people. <laughs> and, and so they have imagined that they are, uh, quote, better off than black poor people because they are better and, 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 and haven't recognized the, 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 the forces and structures and racism uh, that, is, that is hindering even black poor black people. That's the voice of Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, our special guest back for segment four of The Takeout in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. 
Welcome back. Ibram X. Kendi is our special guest. Dr. Kendi, um, it's impossible to encapsulate the George Floyd effect on America and the world, but give it a go. I think, unfortunately, there were many people in denial about how bad it was, how bad police violence has been, how bad racism has been. And I think for, for many people watching George Floyd's murder, his slow murder, it, it, they just no longer could, could deny it. Uh, they could no longer de to, not, to deny that there was a huge problem, that, that a police officer could literally kill somebody like that in broad daylight. <laughs> Uh, and, and then even later claim he was not guilty. I mean, you know, I think many people were awakened and began to recognize this serious problem. Not just the act, but the look of indifference upon that officer's face. Exactly. That he, he, you know, an indifference that, oh, I will get away with this. So, uh, Dr. Kendi, you have noticed, I'm sure that in corporate America, Juneteenth is now a thing. Uh, it hasn't <laughs> been for, oh, let's just say a very long time. For those in my audience still uh, getting to know or trying to get to know what that is, what is it? And why does this corporate embrace matter or not matter? Well, Juneteenth is June 19th, 1865, when uh, enslaved Black people in Texas uh, uh, finally learned uh, that the not only that they had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier, but more importantly, the Civil War ended. Uh, you know, and 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 so as a result, you you had people in Texas, black people in Texas, who've been celebrating this day as the true Emancipation Day uh, ever since, and and it spread in which black people and other. Uh, uh, in other states have, have have continued to celebrate. And now you have people of all races across this country who, who are celebrating Juneteenth as the Emancipation Day, the, the day of abolition. Uh, you know, I, and I think, uh, I think you have corporations who are either responding to uh, their employees who are who are stating, you know what, this is a this should be a national holiday, so let's eat celebrate it. And then you have others who are trying to look for easy things to do th to demonstrate uh, that they that they care about Black lives. Mm -hmm. Is there any inherent danger in that looking for easy things to do at this moment when everyone appears to be looking? Of course, I mean, you know, for any problem as serious and old and deep. You know, as 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 racism, you know, we we just can't. There's no easy way out of creating an anti-racist. You know, there's no we, easy way out of racism. So, uh, you know well the story of Michael Brown. You know well the uh, Obama Justice Department rendering a judgment about that. Do you believe that that judgment, that it was a justified action by the white police officer in the killing of Michael Brown, which was essentially the proclamation of the Obama Justice Department, was that A, wrong, B, racist, or C, both? I would say C. <laughs> okay. It's wrong and racist. Why was it racist? Because so, some in my audience would say, wait a minute, um, if any person, white or black, were to reach for the gun of an officer in his vehicle, doesn't the officer have some right to defend himself or herself? If you were to take race out of it, well, I think first and foremost, 
um, I think that my, so when I think about the way in which the officer described Michael Brown, demonized him, <laughs> there's this long history of demonizing black people and therefore making them dangerous and therefore not figuring out ways to de-escalate the situation and therefore fearing for your life because they're black in ways you would not have if the person would have been white. Fearing the worst, assuming the worst, and then that leading to an instant es escalation. Exactly. Understood. When it's the job of the officer to de-escalate. Is capitalism itself inherently and inextricably racist? So it depends on how you define capitalism. <laughs> and, and I think that just as we struggle to to, to define racism in a way that's actually reflective of its history. I think you have many people who just, who are defining capitalism that's actually divorced from the way it's actually existed and persisted in history. And, 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 and if you look at the history of capitalism, its early development, uh, even the effects of it today, you can't really separate it from racism. Uh, we talked earlier about the transatlantic slave trade. We, we can't talk about the transatlantic slave trade or colonialism or slavery without talking about the development of capitalism itself. It was critical in the accumulation of capital, particularly in Europe. Um, and then even today, you can't really separate poverty from race or wealth from race. You also argue in the book that it's not enough to protest, that protesting makes you feel good about yourself, but it doesn't change anything necessarily. And you sort of call out, or if not call out, at least raise up for inspection the idea of what your activism or your protest is accomplishing. And you argue pretty passionately that you have to be about change. And if you're not changing anything, you're really just satisfying yourself. Expand on that so my audience understands what you're saying. Well, yeah, and, and I, I, what I try to do is distinguish between a demonstration and a protest. And, and so specifically, I was referring to demonstrations in which you know, these are, let's say, a march or a rally, you know, a short time, you know, a short gathering that a large or small group of people come together to demonstrate a problem. And so if you are outraged or saddened or hurt by what you saw happen to George Floyd, and then you feel bad, and then you hear about a local demonstration, and then you decide to go to the, to the demonstration, and because of the you know, the sway and the mood of the crowd because of the speakers, because of the signs, because of the experience, you go home and now you feel better. The only thing that's actually changed has been your feelings. Mm -hmm. And what's the next step or what's the thing to contemplate next that is demonstrably different and makes change? I think that's in terms of joining an actual organization. Uh, or supporting an actual organization or entity or institution that literally is is fighting uh, racist power and policy that's literally striving uh, and campaigning against uh, you know injustice uh, over the long haul. That is the voice of Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. He has been our special guest. The two books again. How to Be an Anti-Racist, stamped from the beginning. I've got about 25 seconds. I just want to give my audience, your perspective in a numerical way, and I know this is unfair, so I just admit that up front, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being deeply pessimistic, 10 being extremely optimistic, where do you fall on where America is heading with this conversation? Where America's headed? I, I would say a 5. About a 5. Okay, very good. <laughs> Dr. Ibn Mex Kendi, it's been our 
Great pleasure to have you with us. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell. For those on the podcast platform, CBSN, stick around for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is our special guest. Dr. Kendi, we have three questions we ask each and every one of our guests. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you're really going to enjoy music, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? I would say the genre that I'm most likely to listen to is is hip-hop. and, you know, I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, and so I came up on Queens hip hop in particular. Uh, the movie, there's so many different movies, but one movie I would I would say is sort of out of left field. And that's a movie called The Jackal mm-hmm. with Bruce Willis. Yep. And, and, and that was he was like a, a, a sniper or a hitman. Um, and I don't know, there's there's just something really interesting to me about snipers. <laughs> um and uh and 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 sort of uh so and and he always would have of course a a different uh uh uh, uh, so he present himself differently so he was was actually quite uh fascinating um and then the book uh you know that that changed my life i would say the the autobiography of malcolm x and and the reason for that is just because you know it's really a book of growth and, and human transformation. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I, I, I just really admire people who are able to transform themselves and grow. Before I let you go, if there's someone in my audience who would like to look to you for either a recommendation about a book or a movie to grow themselves on these issues, what would you recommend? Wow. I, so I would actually, so if you go to the anti-racist, anti-racist reading list, uh, you could sort of Google that or search that, and I have some uh, a series of different books. I don't want to just name one because course, I want understood. you to have a second and a third and a fourth. Understood. And that would be the same for movies? Yes. Very good. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, it's been our great pleasure. Thanks very much. Audience, we'll see you next week. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for digging The Takeout. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.